Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from the director of a new university research centre in London about the interface between academic research in machine learning and big tech companies. People somehow think these tech giants are full of some special magic or something. These people don't grow on trees. They grow in universities by and large, right? So they are plucked out of the universities where they're overly busy with teaching, administration. It's crazy, right? That was Professor David Barber, director of the UCL Centre for Artificial Intelligence. He came into the studio to talk to me about how academic researchers can work with business and the wider community to create the best outcomes for society. David, you've just been appointed director of the new UCL Centre for Artificial Intelligence. Can you tell us how did the centre come about and what are you aiming to do? Well, UCL has been quite active in AI and machine learning for many years. And I think we wanted to have a vehicle where we could actually show to the world what we're doing. So about a year and a half ago, we had this idea of an AI centre that would house all of our activities under AI, which had previously been a little bit siloed in different parts of the UCL, and bring them together under this one roof where we can bump into each other very easily, but also invite other people to come. We thought that was a really great opportunity. So we were very fortunate to have a building become free or floor in a building in Holborn. And uh, now we have a lovely building there, um, kindly refurbished by UCL, and it's great. Now, when I came to your launch event a few weeks ago, I was very struck by a number of the speakers talking about the multidisciplinary nature of what you're trying to do, and that AI didn't always used to be nestled in computer science departments in universities. It was often linked to the philosophy or psychology departments. Why has it been captured, as it were, by the computer science department, and do you think it does need a broader context? Yes, it does. Historically, perhaps less so, partly because it's only within the last, say, 10 years or so that the applications of machine learning AI have become so pervasive that we're touching on aspects that affect all of us now. So there are ethical, sociological challenges and issues there to be addressed, which simply weren't there when you're just using these tools only in a research context. The sad truth is, or the interesting truth perhaps, is that we just don't know how to solve AI. Even now, these are all just hunches and guesses and, you know, we're just going with whatever works. So there's still very much a role for, you know, people who, for example, in the neurosciences, psychology, etc., people who have other viewpoints on how natural intelligence might actually be functioning. So I think there's a very interesting interplay there and inspiration coming from those groups. In the early days of AI, when computation was not particularly powerful, it was important to have input from people who could look at the more logical sides of things, perhaps things which didn't require so much computation or the more philosophical side of things. So I think right now, going forward, you cannot get away from the fact that you need interdisciplinarity in this area. It's simply inescapable that these tools are you know, affecting all of us. And what does that mean? The answers to these questions are not mathematical in nature at all. So if you think about things like bias or fairness or ethics, it's not for us to decide what the correct solution would be, what would the correct measure, you know, is it the greatest good for all or the individual or whatever it would be. We can implement whatever society, in quotes, asks us to do, but we're not the arbiters of the ethical considerations themselves. We will implement whatever people feel or deem is actually the right thing to do. Now, you've been in this field a long time. Where do you personally think we're going to see the greatest impact of AI? 
Well, I think certainly things like self-driving cars, that's going to be a major thing. I think that there are going to be some interesting applications in things like agriculture. Things which are already quite heavily automated will become increasingly so. I think automation in agriculture will be enormous. Not necessarily in the way that one may think in the sense of traditional farming, but maybe much more localised, intensive farming close to city centres, which would be automated within perhaps big factories. And These are kind of vertical farms you're talking about. Yeah, things like that. But the automation of the farming there, I think that could be potentially a very interesting thing or maybe a very close connection with the supermarkets. But I think that supply of food will probably be a big impact. I think also the delivery of goods will be another big thing. Currently, we are very used to people delivering things for us. I think it's quite natural to think that quite soon that will be automated either through things like drones or some form of physical walking robot that might actually come to your house bringing various goods to you. Although it's hard to do, actually, quite frankly, you know, like interacting in the physical world with robots. It sounds maybe quite easy compared to some other apparently difficult AI tasks like game playing like chess or something like that. But actually, robotics is pretty complex compared to game playing. Now, you're partnering, as you were mentioning, with some quite big industrial partners, some of the big tech firms. Do you think universities can remain at the leading edge of AI or is it the private companies that have vast amounts of data huge amounts of cash and computing power who really are going to do all the running in this field? Well, I think that universities are, at the moment, still highly relevant. You know, a lot of the research which comes out of the universities is still very, very high quality. But perhaps the kinds of research that they are doing is a little bit different. So it's true that it's very challenging now for a university to do some of the kinds of research that the industry giants are able to do and which is very relevant sometimes for consumers. So, for example, if you want to make a next-generation speech recognition system, that may require data resources, computational resources, which are not addressable in a standard university environment. But the people are the same, right? So it's worth bearing in mind that the people that are working in the tech giants largely are the same people that were working or perhaps even currently work in academia as well. So people actually are sometimes part-time in university or part-time in industry. So I think there is a very good chance that the universities will continue to play a very leading role, particularly when you think that we're still a very long way away, in my opinion, from where we'd really like to be in terms of AI. And to get to that next stage, that won't necessarily just require throwing more money in terms of computation and data. It requires some creative thinking, perhaps in an interdisciplinary sense, as we mentioned before. But do you think it's a good thing that there is a free flow of academics and researchers between universities and private companies? Or is there a danger that universities just become captured by big tech? In fact, we've seen in Carnegie Mellon University in America, their whole robotics department was basically bought out by Uber. Is there a danger we're just stripping away the expertise from a public sector? Yes, there is. That's happened already in the UK. I would say, you know, a good fraction of our leading researchers and academics have actually already been scooped up by the tech giants. It depends a little bit on your viewpoint, right? So you, you could say, look, that's a success story. Some people might say that's the natural progression of research. Once it's taken up by industry, academia has played its role and it's over to the industry to take that forwards. But there's another viewpoint of this, which is that actually most of the key developments which are required to be made shouldn't be kept in the hands of a small number of very powerful companies. And the universities should be playing a good role still to democratise, if you like, these technologies. And I think it's a little bit of both. The thing that's interesting about the industry versus academia 
it's not necessarily only just about the money or the sort of concerns about where the power is concentrating, but it's also it's an interesting point about how does the research actually get done? What is the aim of the research? So if you've got a project or problem that you really, really care strongly about, and how are you going to solve that? Let's take an example like the Manhattan Project. Now, how are you going to build a bomb, right, an atom bomb? Are you going to take that money and are you going to scatter it across a whole bunch of researchers and hope that one or two of them, these lone geniuses sitting there in their offices with one or two PhD students, might hit on something which will solve the problem? That's one approach. Another approach is to concentrate your resources into a single place and put everybody together and encourage them to actually solve that problem. Now, if you really, really, really care about something, then probably the Manhattan sort of concentration style idea is the right way to go. But the universities are much more on the sort of scattering of the funding, at least historically. So it is a question of resources to some extent, but it's also a question of attitude and how to focus and use those resources wisely. And my feeling is that it's not just the UK, but the way that university research is funded is a kind of broken system. What way is it broken? Well, I mean, just look at, say, the tech giants. They come and they take our brightest academics. People somehow think these tech giants that are full of some special magic or something. These people don't grow in trees. They grow in universities, by and large, right? So they are plucked out of the universities where they're overly busy with teaching, administration. It's crazy, right? The greatest academics we have in this country are incapable of really addressing the greatest challenges the country face in terms of research in the future because they're simply not able to do the job that they actually have spent perhaps the last 20, 30 years of their life trying to train for. But, you know, the universities are so cash-strapped and they're also all about teaching, it's all about administration. The job has changed so dramatically in academia the last 20-odd years that when they're offered a chance to go and work in, say, some tech giant, it's not just the money there, but it's actually the opportunity to finally crack on with a team of like-minded, talented people to actually address some of these very interesting problems. So that's really a funding issue in the sense that the funding is not used wisely at the moment. So I think I'd like to see a more concentrated effort of the research funding. It's also a kind of massive differential in pay as you're alluding to between the university and the private sector as well, isn't there? I mean, Google and DeepMind are just along the road from you at UCL, but they've been scooping up a lot of academics kind of five times the pay of the Prime Minister. That's quite a big differential. It is, but I don't think it's the only reason that people go to work there. What I was suggesting before is that academics, by and large, they don't go into academia because they want to make money. It's a long, long training process. The typical mindset of an academic is they like their independence, they like their freedom. Most of them are very passionate about what they're doing. If they wanted to make money, they would have done something else, you know, many, many years ago. But the sad reality is that many of them in academia at the moment don't have the time to do what they would really like to do. They probably don't have quite enough money to live the lifestyle they would hope to have. So when they're offered the opportunity to be free from that and then go and work in industry, if it's a very interesting research lab, that's good. But I have to say that I don't think it's necessarily the ideal solution for many academics. I think one would have to ask them, but my suspicion is that many of them would prefer to actually stay in academia because... At their core, they love independence. And if you go and work even for a cool tech giant, you're still 
told what to do. You're not a totally free person who can just think of anything you want to do. You have to do what your project manager is asking you to do. Now, in your part of North London, there's an extraordinary mixture of different institutions and companies emerging. You've got UCL, you've got DeepMind, you have the Francis Crick Institute, you have the whole British Library and the Alan Turing Institute, which is housed near there. You've got a whole bunch of VCs, you've got a whole bunch of startups. Some people have said that this is the Palo Alto of Europe. We're going to get this great knowledge quarter developing. Do you think that's right? I don't know if it's a Palo Alto, but it's great. It's very, very exciting. At UCL, we also have some interest in the knowledge quarter. I don't, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say about it, but that's certainly of great interest to us. You know, I think we view the King's Cross Knowledge Quarter as a major opportunity not just for UCL, but for the UK generally. And I think it is a very exciting area. It's no coincidence that all of the tech giants are circling around that area. And I think it's a very exciting place, both in terms of the concentration of interest there, but the diversity of them as well. And as you mentioned, the Crick Institute is very, very exciting. The Turing Institute is also super exciting. So I think that what I'd like to see more of, though, is innovation. I don't want just to think about the corporates, sort of, and the tech giants and, you know, the big research groups. But what we need more of in the UK is the innovation from the startup level, getting to the point that it doesn't just become like a 20, 30-person company and get acquired by one of the tech giants, but actually it's able to stand on its own two feet and become a much more significant player in industry. So maybe some ideal perspective would be some institutions like UCL foster startup companies and spin-outs, but they actually are established through perhaps spaces like the Knowledge Quarter and more organically grow to some significant size that actually, you know, they're just not going to get acquired so easily. And is that scale-up infrastructure in place now, do you think? I mean, for no. a long time, people have talked about um, Europe lacking that scale-up. No, it's not there. I think there are great challenges about that. I mean, obviously, one of the major issues is just market size, right? You know, if you're a small startup, you know, and you, you look at the addressable market that you have, you know, of course, the US is much, much bigger. So it's quite natural that they get acquired by US tech giants. But I think... Europe is trying to fight this a little bit. There are initiatives out there to try to make a more European-wide research network, which will also hopefully help with innovation as well. It's hard to say, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we will be able to do a little bit more in Europe in that sense. But that would require some more integration of thought and leadership actually across Europe to achieve that. And the European Union is putting, what, about 100 billion euros into the Horizon Europe project over the next seven years. And a lot of that focus is on startups, innovation, AI, deep tech. Are we now going to be chopped off from that in Britain? Not sure. I don't know, to be honest, the details of those agreements. But I should say one thing about that. You might think that it's kind of a shame if we were cut off from some of those sorts of funding. So historically, actually for us in the machine learning AI area, we've not looked particularly to the European Union for funding. And the European Union for funding, in our area at least, in some sense, it was more, from my viewpoint, a sort of a project to ensure European harmony. For example, a typical European Union project would have been something like, let's say, you know, we're going to build some digital assistant. That might be a call for something like that. And of course, then a digital assistant will need some brains for it. So you might say you need the speech recognition, you might need some visual object recognition, you might need some even a physical thing if this is some kind of little robot. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. I might be walking around the room and typically then the Germans might do the speech recognition, the Brits might do the image recognition, the Spanish, something else. But it was always very much with a view to scattering again the resources and ensuring that there was a collaboration effect across Europe. Typically, very little integration of those separate components ever actually could. There are very few instances where you could actually go, you see, that's the digital assistant that we said we were going to build. So they have these a little bit strange frameworks where they have these calls for building these things, all the money scattered, but they never actually build this thing. So for us, I don't think there were too many tears shed when we thought, well, we may be losing funding from the European Union for at least some of the AI activities. I mean, there's some very good things in terms of networking, but in terms of the research projects, in terms of identifying a specific thing to do on the research, I don't feel it was working particularly well for us. So I think it goes back to a little bit the point before, you know, if you are going to use these resources, the question is how to use them and how to use them wisely. So I'd like to think that the European Union will actually think a little bit more carefully about how to actually maybe concentrate these resources in some slightly more meaningful way and perhaps be less concerned so much about it as an exercise in European harmonisation. Now, a lot of the excitement about AI recently has been as a result of deep learning techniques. And there is something of a growing backlash against that now, saying that maybe this is not the miracle solution that some people had previously imagined. And I was reading a very interesting interview in Wired with Jerome Pacenti, who's Facebook's head of AI, who was actually previously, I think, worked at Benevolent AI around the corner from UCL. And he said this, deep learning and current AI, if you are really honest, has a lot of limitations. We are very, very far from human intelligence. And there are some criticisms that are valid. It can propagate human biases. It's not easy to explain. It doesn't have common sense. It's more on the level of pattern matching than robust semantic understanding. Is that right? Yeah. Pretty much. I think that it's true, but I would say that's current deep learning, right? So it depends a little bit on your viewpoint as well. So some people would say, well, look, a human brain is in some sense a kind of deep learning style device, right? It's not based upon a traditional computational device, and yet it manages to do many of the kinds of things that Jerome would like it to do. So some people would take that viewpoint and say, well, it's a question more of how to manipulate, if you like, the the sort of deep learning style systems to do the kinds of things that we would like it to do better, like having a deeper understanding of the world around it, the deeper understanding of text, etc. But it should be possible because, look, see, brains can do it. So that's one argument in, in favor of that approach. But I think that it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most efficient way to do it. So if you think about some of the kinds of things that we would like to do, perhaps having more explanation around um, predictions of these systems, more knowledge about how the world around us works. It may be possible to do it within a deep learning system, but it may be quite hard to do it that way. So definitely there is increasing interest in how to 
interface the kinds of knowledges that we think we need the system to have access to with maybe some deeper reasoning systems like maybe the deep learning system. And still, we don't really know how to do that, right? So it's a very exciting and interesting research area in itself. So if you think currently about the technologies you might have on your smartphone, many of which are actually deep learning systems, when you think about, for example, translation, it's quite remarkable, really, that they're able to do this without access to the kinds of deep knowledge and understanding that we have access to. So perhaps when we read that paragraph in English and we try to translate it into, say, French, we might comprehend that sentence and that paragraph as what the objects are, who's doing what with them, etc. And then make a corresponding version of that in the French language, a version based upon an actual understanding of what's going on in that paragraph of text. But the way it works in deep learning and current translation systems is far from that. Really, it's just a very superficial thing. They're looking almost at, you take each word in the English sentence and you have some perhaps four or five correlates in French and you then just try to rearrange those correlates in French in the most grammatically likely structure. And more often than not, that seems to work. It's a useful tool to have. I'm not knocking it, it's great, but it's not where we want to be in AI. We would like to have systems which are actually able to read text, comprehend what's going on, make summarizations for us, make linkages with reading vast amounts of text, things that we simply could not do at scale ourselves. And that's the kind of systems that we would like to have. Also, if you think about digital assistants, you want the assistant to ultimately have a much deeper understanding of you. You know, what is your environment? What are you talking about? Your family members, your dog's name, you know, the fact that Bobby isn't a friend, but it's your family dog or whatever it is. You know, there needs to be persistence of this knowledge. So all of these things are very, very important to integrate into the AI systems in some way. And how to do that is still very much an open research question. But I think it's also fair to say the different kinds of intelligence out there. So maybe the psychologists might say, you know, typically there might be two kinds of fast and slow thinking in many reasoning systems where the perceptual, which might be the fast thing, maybe you would just recognize the snake, for example. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a a kind of a reasoning style system. You just have an instant pattern recognition. But on the other hand, if I ask you to figure out how to get from St. Paul's to High Holborn, the quickest way. You'd have to sort of have maybe some mental map about how to do that. You'd have to sort of think about it, have a model perhaps in your mind and go through the options and have some deeper reasoning about it. So then the question is, you know, you could say, well, that pattern matching of the snake is the kind of thing that deep learning can do very well at the moment. Those reasoning kinds of planning kinds of problems are things that perhaps in principle could be done by deep learning systems, but perhaps a little bit clunky to do at the moment. But it's certainly clear that we need both of those kinds of reasonings and whether or not they're all achievable under the same technical umbrella of deep learning is less clear. But I think we don't mind so much. I mean, I I should say as well that the community of AI, certainly machine learning, is very, very pragmatic. We will go with whatever works. We are not ideologists in the sense that, you know, we, well, this thing has got to be deep learning or it's got to be something else. We will use whatever works and take it to the max in that sense. So that implies in a way that maybe some of the old techniques of good old-fashioned AI, semantic understanding and symbolic logic and so on, are they going to be revived? Are they in, almost merged with the deep learning techniques to provide enhanced AI? 
Yes, they are. People do that already. The way that it's often working at the moment is that people are trying to endow deep learning systems with some simple logical reasoning capabilities. So, for example, they might be asked to do arithmetic or perhaps given one sentence, does this other sentence actually logically follow from that first sentence? So all those things are currently there. It seems to be the case that you can endow systems with some forms of logic. My own feeling is that the bottleneck is partly there, but the biggest bottleneck is actually getting access to the knowledge itself. So if you think about humans, I mean, we're very impressed with kids, right? They're able to run around and interact in the environment and do fun things. But you're not going to ask a kid to solve some science problem because they just don't have access to the knowledge yet that they need to be able to do that. It takes them years to develop not just the knowledge, but maybe the ways of thinking that will be required to actually do scientific research. Now, similarly, it's a big ask of AI systems that don't have access to the knowledge that's potentially required to do those kinds of things. So I think I see that more as the challenge, just getting that either knowledge embedded within the AI system or at least that it has access to that knowledge. Maybe it's an interface, of databases where it can query them perhaps and then use those results of the query back to update its understanding of the world. But those are the kinds of things people are currently very, very much working heavily on. And I think that's a great prize. So I think when people talk about deep learning research, there are many, many avenues to go down. But for me, the most exciting one is there. I would really like to see people figuring out and focusing much more on how to get that access to that knowledge that's required to make the deep learning systems or the AI systems work much more efficiently and effectively for us. Now, for better or worse, a lot of people are saying that the world is now divided into three camps, as it were, of AI. You've got the US system, you've got the Chinese system, and you've got the European system, which all have very different sensibilities and focuses and priorities. I'd like to ask a bit about China. Kai-Fu Li has talked in his book AI Superpowers about how China is leading the world in the application of AI. Is that right, do you think? And is there a danger that Europe just gets left behind in this world of AI superpowers? Certainly, China is doing very, very well. From the research perspective, the volume of output is very high. I think that the overall quality is probably not as good as some of the European and the US labs. But I think, yes, in terms of application, China is racing ahead. And it's not just in AI, it's across a whole range of sectors. You know, So if you think about things like payment systems. Even in Europe now, we don't necessarily fully trust credit cards. You know, you go to Germany, maybe people like to pay cash in some places still. This is, this is crazy in China. You know, people don't even use credit cards anymore. Everything's on your phone. Perhaps quite soon, you won't even use that. You just pay with your face, right? You just you know, present your face and everything's paid automatically. So I think it's more about the reception of technology in China. And there are very interesting cultural distinctions there. So there's a combination of project programming in some sense where the governments will say we have a definite target that China will become the leading AI superpower by 2030. That's a, you know, a specified aim. And they'll put whatever resources in they need to try to achieve that. So that's one element of this. Another element is that Chinese society itself is relatively much more receptive to the introduction of new technologies than we are in the West. That has huge consequences in terms of not just the economics, if you like, but also the abilities to actually do this. So healthcare, for example, you could say, well, everybody would recognize to some extent there are great opportunities within healthcare if you could get hold of this data to make a much better diagnostic system. 
But actually getting hold of the data is extremely challenging, particularly in the West, because perhaps quite rightly, there's a focus on the, the individual's privacy, etc. This is very, very important. But I think what we often forget or miss out on when people talk about things like responsible innovation is very much on the individual. You know, we have to protect the individual's rights and freedoms. But we also have a responsibility as scientists to make things which help society. So we could make much better healthcare systems. We can make diagnostic treatments, provided we can get maybe access to this data. And that may require some shift in understanding what's best for the individual versus what's best for society. And I think currently our thinking on that spectrum from individual to a communal is very, very much on the individual in the West. And it's a little bit more on the communal in the East. And I think that's also part of the story as to why China is much more receptive to these technologies, because they're looking at the collective benefits of some of these technologies. So of course, there are concerns as well. But it's very great to be able to have systems which are self-driving cars, pooling data to do maybe face recognition, maybe has some positive things like in payment systems. Of course, there are concerns in China that they're perhaps racing away with the communal benefits, but perhaps taking their eye off some of the individual challenges around freedom. So I think for us in the West, the challenge is how to retain the kinds of things that we hold very dear about the freedoms, but actually not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, we know we're just going to discard the idea of pooling data because it's a worry and not having any of the potential benefits from being able to do that. Well, I'm very glad that your centre is now there to thrash out all of these issues. Um, but this is what you're going to be focusing on, is it very much? Yeah, so as typical in universities, there's three strands. There's research, there's innovation, and there's teaching. So um, UCL is done very well in teaching. We are graduating a very large number of students every year in AI, particularly in the master's program. So I think we're quite a big beast in the UK in that sense. How many students? Graduate? Around 150 mm-hmm. each year in the broad area of AI from students all around the world. Actually, a lot from China, around 30 to 35 percent uh, graduates uh, from China. Many of those students also come from Europe, mainland Europe. So the UK and London in particular has done very, very well. We're kind of like the, not necessarily the Palo Alto, but maybe the Silicon Valley London is of Europe. And it attracts a lot of very talented students, some of which go back to Europe, but also a large number of which remain here and form startup companies. So my own students, actually, many of them come from Europe, have stayed here, contribute enormously to the UK society and economy by making startups and spin-outs from the universities. And that's enormously important to try to keep hold of that in this Brexit environment. These things are all linked up. So those three strands that I mentioned in research, teaching and innovation, they're not independent, isolated pillars. Students come to get good teaching and training or whatever, but then they perhaps graduate and they do PhD programs and they're doing their research and then they graduate and they go into innovation. And certainly we are absolutely compelled to do really well in all of those. I think the AI Centre is at UCL. We're very fortunate to be in this lovely building right in the centre of London, very close to a large number of other very exciting organisations. But also we have a great innovation culture here in London and we want to support that. It's not for the aggrandizement of UCL, it's a national resource that we want to use to benefit the UK economy and society more generally. So we very much see the AI Centre as part of the solution, if you like, and as part of the network of opportunities within London. We're very collaborative, we're very open, there'll be a whole range of 
events that we're hoping to host starting from next year. There'll be events related to how AI and art actually can play an interesting synergy together. There'll be opportunities for the public to come and discuss ethical issues about AI, come to look at actually what we're doing in terms of research. So yeah, we're open for business. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how your centre develops, but thank you very much, David. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. We're taking a short break, but we will be back in the new year with more interviews where we will explore the way technology is changing our lives. In the meantime, please keep sending in your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from our listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and do rate and review us on your chosen podcast app as well so that other listeners can find us. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.